Well, we will go ahead and dismiss our kids to Kids Church this morning. As the ankle biters are heading out, we'll go ahead and ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 27. We are just a few weeks away from Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we are going to ask the question this morning, who killed Jesus? Uh, there was a, a popular book that was written by Bill O'Reilly a few years back, Killing Jesus. Uh, he put forth many hypotheses, many theories uh, that, uh, that the culpability of Jesus' death lied at the hands of the Romans, at the Jews, at Pilate, uh, at, uh, at the, the Sanhedrin, uh, he put forth many theories. And so we're going to ask the question this morning, who was it that killed Jesus? As we look at Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26, we're going to look at Jesus' official trial before Pilate. We understand that Jesus has already been subject to at least two trials, that he has stood before Annas. And he has stood before Caiaphas. In Matthew's gospel, there is the omission of Jesus' initial trial before Pilate and Jesus' trial before Herod. We see that chronicled in John's gospel as well as some of the other gospels. But here in Matthew's gospel, we see the omission of those two trials. However, at this point, we understand that Jesus has, that he has stood trial at least twice, possibly up to four times, for crimes that, that he did not commit. And so we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer with regard to even one single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. 
See to it, see to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him up to be crucified. Let's pray. Fathers, we see the text this morning. May we see ourselves in this story. May we see ourselves either in the crowd, in the judgment seat of Pilate, in the seat of the elders and the chief priests, or in the disciples who are glaringly absent. Or may we see ourselves and may we be convicted of our sin and may we turn may we turn from our sin in repentance and cry out for mercy we ask this in Jesus name amen well as we look at Matthew's gospel let us let us remind ourselves that the book of Matthew was written by all right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try that again clearly clearly y'all y'all weren't expecting me to, to ask a response question so, so we understand that the Bible can only mean one thing, that the Bible can only mean what it meant, that it was written by a specific author to a specific audience to, con- to convey a specific meaning. And we may be able to take several different applications, but we cannot read into the Bible anything that it did not meant. And so in order for us to understand what the Bible meant, we have to understand who its audience was, who its author was, and what the author was trying to convey to his particular audience. So in studying the book of Matthew, we understand that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written to the, to the Jews, and it was, presented to, it was written to present Jesus as the son of David. And so we understand that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew to present the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah that has come to redeem his people and he has come to cast off the sin, the burden and the the bondage of sin and to redeem the people of God. Now we understand that while the book of Matthew was written to the Jews, it's very interesting that Matthew's gospel bookends the testimony of Jesus' identity with, with two Gentile testimonies. Remember, as Jesus is born in the book of Matthew, who is it that shows up to proclaim and to, to worship Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews? Do we remember Matthew chapter 2? We see Jesus is not visited by shepherds in Matthew's gospel, but rather he's visited by whom? By the kings, by the wise men, by the magi. Now these magi, these kings, these wise men, were these Jews. I'll give you a hint. The answer is no. Were these magi Jews? No. But they are the first ones to visit Jesus, and they worship Jesus as what? As king. They give him gifts of gold, which is a gift of royalty. They give him gifts of, of incense, and they give him gifts of myrrh. These were very valuable gifts, and they worship him as king. Remember what they asked, what they asked Herod whenever they showed up? They said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so Matthew bookends his gospel. He, bookends the, he starts his gospel with, with Jesus' deity, Jesus' kingship, 
Jesus' lordship being pronounced by Gentiles. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, he bookends it with a proclamation of a Roman governor, a Gentile, who says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response, if we look at the text, Jesus' response is the same that he said earlier. He said, those are your words, not mine. And then do we remember the, the phrase that Pilate has inscribed on the plaque that they hang above the cross? This is the king of the Jews. Isn't it interesting that Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, says to his Jewish audience, you may not have accepted Jesus as the king of the Jews, but these Gentile magi and this Gentile Roman official recognize Jesus is king. He is Lord. What an indictment to his Jewish audience. What an indictment to the Jewish people to say that while you didn't recognize and submit to the lordship of Jesus, these two opposing Gentile figures recognize Jesus as king. Interesting. If we look at the text, there are four key players in the trial here before Pilate, and that's what I want us to see here this morning. We have, first of all, we have Pilate, the Roman governor. We then have the Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests. Remember that the Sanhedrin were made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the elders. And so we have Pilate, the governor of, of Judah, uh, of Judea. We have the Sanhedrin, the elders. We then have the crowd, and we have the disciples. You say, well, preacher, the disciples aren't anywhere in that text. Exactly. Had not Peter and the rest of the disciples just, just less than 12 hours ago stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, stood with Jesus and said, if everyone else betrays you, if everyone else leaves you, we will never leave you. We will never, never, we, we are willing to do, we are willing to die if necessary. Had they not just said that? And here is Jesus before Pilate, and where are his disciples? Glaringly absent. There are four players here, there are four characters, and I want us to look at all four of them. The disciples, the crowd, the Sanhedrin, and ultimately we're going to look at Pilate. And we're going to ask the question, who killed Jesus? Well, the disciples are glaringly absent. They had pledged their allegiance to Jesus, they had pledged their undying loyalty to Jesus, and come the time whenever push came to shove, come the time whenever the trial, the hardships, the afflictions were there, they were glaringly absent. And I believe that many of us, that many of us in our American culture, many of us in our, in our comfort, many of us in our, our luxuries, we will follow Jesus so long as it's not difficult. We will follow Jesus so long as he doesn't ask us to do anything that, that jeopardizes our comfort or jeopardizes our 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 creature comforts that jeopardizes our luxury that jeopardizes our lifestyle and we'll follow jesus so long as it's not difficult here's the question i ask what changed from palm sunday to good friday do we remember a few weeks ago as jesus is entering into jerusalem 
the crowd was crying out saying what? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a messianic cry that they were saying. They were crying the Hillel. They were crying out during Passover. They were saying, this is our Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the son of David. And here, five days later, five days later, their disciples are absent. They had seen Jesus cast out demons. They were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he stood up and said, Ego a me, when he said, I am, and the entire Roman cohort fell on their face. They were with Jesus when he picked up Malchus's ear and stuck it back on. They were with Jesus whenever he walked on water. They were with Jesus when he fed the thousands. They were with Jesus when he raised Peter's mother-in-law from the dead. They were with Jesus just a few weeks ago when he called Lazarus out of the grave, they had seen the power and the deity of Jesus. And they had been there whenever the whole crowd was saying, you are the Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the moment affliction strikes, what do they do? They scatter. I believe that many of us are just like the disciples. We follow Jesus when he's walking on water, when he's healing the sick, when he's doing great and mighty things, when things are going wonderful. But the moment that affliction, trials, and hardships strike, we don't want to be implicated with this Jesus. Let's look at the crowd. The scripture tells us, let's look at Matthew chapter 27. Verse 21, but the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus? And they all said, let him be crucified. Look at verse 20. Why did they say, let him be crucified? The scripture tells us that the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. This is the same crowd who had just five days ago said, this is our Messiah. They had laid palm branches. They had seen him riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. They had proclaimed, this is our Messiah. However, they were easily manipulated by the latest political and religious rhetoric. The high priest, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees had said, this is clearly not the Messiah. He doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't look like anything we've been expecting. And they were easily manipulated. They were easily persuaded by political and religious rhetoric. It's a good thing none of us are like that. It's a good thing none of us buy into every, every fad and every article that we read on Facebook or Twitter or whatever the latest social media platform is. It's a good thing that we don't buy into to the, latest, the latest prophetic preacher or that we don't buy into the latest move of religious rhetoric. It's a good thing that we're Berean Christians, right? That we take the Word of God, we receive it eagerly, we test the Word to see that it be so. On Palm Sunday, they expected a certain kind of Messiah. 
On Good Friday, Jesus did not look like the Messiah that they had expected. If Jesus shows up, if Jesus acts, interacts, intercedes in your life in a way that you had not expected, how will you respond? Go with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 28. Matthew, chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus made this statement. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is not the Messiah the crowd wanted. This is not the Messiah that they wanted to overthrow the bonds of Rome. This is not the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted a Messiah to come and deliver them from their oppression. They wanted a Messiah to come and free them from political bondage. They did not want a Messiah to come and give his life. But Jesus understood that the political bonds and the political bondage was merely a shadow of the spiritual bondage that the Israelites suffered. That the bonds of sin and the shackles of sin, a sinful nature was far greater than the bondage of a political enemy. And the Messiah that was handcuffed there, standing before Pontius Pilate, was not the Messiah they expected. And then I want to look at the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Why? I believe it's because he had challenged their authority and challenged their status quo. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem twice. John's gospel, he enters into Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry. And as soon as he enters into Jerusalem, what does he do? He heads where? To the temple. And he gets there and he's ecstatic because he gets to walk into the temple and he sees all of the great things that the priests and all of the great things that the Levites are doing. He sees how they are honoring God with their worship and he worships there at the temple, right? No. Jesus walks in. He overturns the money changers' tables. He drives them out of the temple courtyard. And he says, you have turned my father's house into a den of robbers. At that moment, the high priest makes note, this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. Then Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He heads out to Caesarea Philippi, Galilee, Capernaum. Spends the next three years ministering out there in the countryside. And nobody really takes notice of Jesus. And then three years later, he shows up in Jerusalem during Passover, and he enters into Jerusalem. And as soon as he enters into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. And he drives out the money changes. He overturns their tables, and he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And the same high priest who had made note of this Jesus from Nazareth years ago says, this guy's got to go. Why? Because he challenged their authority and the status quo. He challenged their authority. They had been manipulating and they had been stealing and they had been, been wickedly subverting the word of God in order to gain monetary and political gain. And Jesus single-handedly 
undid everything that they had been working for in one fell swoop and they said he's got to go they said this is not our messiah they refused to acknowledge jesus as messiah because he challenged their authority and he challenged their status quo what's interesting is they don't make that they don't make that decision when jesus is feeding the poor they don't even make that decision whenever jesus is challenging the rabbinic teaching if you look at the sermon on the mount whenever jesus spends matthew chapter 5 matthew chapter 6 and matthew chapter 7 teaching contrasting the whole rabbinic understanding of the law said you've heard it said but i say unto you you've heard it said but i say unto you you've heard it said but i say unto you all of matthew 5 6 and 7 jesus challenges the rabbinic understanding and the pharisaical teaching but at the end of Jesus' teaching, they don't come to the conclusion that this man's got to die. They didn't mind Jesus' teaching. They didn't mind him healing the sick, him feeding the poor. But they said, we will not have this man rule over us. This man will not be our king. I want to you to hear what the Sanhedrin said in response to Jesus as their king go with me to John chapter 19 verse 15 Pilate says this is your king this Jesus this Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews and listen to their response in verse 15 They cried out, this is the Pharisees, this is the Sadducees, this is the chief priests and the elders. These are the the religious leaders of the day. They know the Torah, they know the law, they know the Pentateuch. They can quote it chapter and verse. They know that it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship any false gods or any graven image. And listen to what they say. They say, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And listen to their response. We have no king but Caesar. That awesome chills up your spine. The high priest of Israel said, I claim no allegiance to any king other than the roman king other than the roman caesar in greek means god caesar claimed deity hero israel the lord your god is one the high priest were willing to commit blasphemy rather than submit to the authority of Jesus. They looked the part. They did all the right things. They said all the right things. They had all of the trappings of piety and righteousness. They would have probably been our pastor's our deacons, our committee chairs, they would have been been our denominational leaders. They They would have dressed the part. They would have looked the part. Their image was everything. 
John chapter 19, verse 15, they said, We have no king but Caesar. They were willing to stop at nothing to get what they wanted. And then let's look at Pilate. Pilate was willing to kill an innocent man. In John's Gospel, three different times, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man, but so that I can satisfy you, we'll scourge him and release him. And whenever Pilate's about to release him, the, the, the high priests and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin come to him and they say, you can't release this man. He's guilty. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. And even after he presents Jesus and Barabbas, he says, I find no guilt in this man, but because you have requested Barabbas, I will acquiesce, I will acquiesce to your to your demands. And Pilate washes his hands and says, his blood is on your hands because Pilate understands that this man is innocent. One of the things that the Romans pride themselves on is their due process. You know where we get our judgment, our justice system from? The Romans. They pride themselves on due process, that nobody is executed, nobody is, is punished without due process. And here is this man who stands in due process, and he, he, is, he is accused by a multitude of witnesses. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 27, verse 12 and 13. Go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 12 and 13. Pilate asked him in verse 11, he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, those are your words, not mine. In verse 12, while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he made no answer. In verse 12, the chief priests, the, the, the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees, they stand before Pilate and they bring forth their case against Jesus. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what do you have to say for yourself? And Jesus stood there, forfeiting his right to be right. Jesus humbly, like a sheep led to slaughter, stood there. Pilate was willing to kill an innocent, an innocent man to maintain his power and his position. He knew that if he could not quell this, this Jewish upheaval, if he could not quell this Jewish insurrection, that Caesar would remove him from authority in Judea. He knew that, that had it gotten back to Caesar, that there was someone who claimed to be king in, Jer in Jerusalem, someone who claimed to be king in Judea, and Pilate didn't do something about it, that he would, have, he would probably lose his position. It's interesting in the gospel that there is only one person who pleads for the life of Jesus. Who is it? Look at Verse 19, while he was sitting on his judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Who's the only person who pleads for the life of Jesus? Is it Peter? Is it John? James, the son of Zebedee, the sons of thunder? Is it Matthew, the author of the gospel? No. It's a Gentile woman. Someone of... of of low esteem, of low repute, a Gentile woman pleads for the life of Jesus. Well, I want to point out 
the disciples, I believe, are 100% culpable for the death of Jesus. They left Him. They abandoned Him. I believe that the crowd is 100% culpable for the death of Jesus. After all, they were the ones who cried out, Crucify Him! Release to us Barabbas! Give to us this notorious criminal and crucify this Jesus! I believe that the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, I believe that they are 100% culpable for the death of Jesus. And I believe that Pilate is 100% culpable for the death of Jesus, but I don't believe that any one of them killed Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Thousand, some 600 to 1,000 years before the death of Jesus, Isaiah writes, Writes in verse 2, he said, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. Was not Jesus despised and forsaken of men? Skip down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, he would render himself as a guilt offering. I submit to you this morning that God killed Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, it tells us that God, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I believe that as Jesus bore the iniquity of man, that God himself poured out his wrath, due sin, upon Jesus. And Jesus became our substitute. He became that which would bear the burden of our sin. Certainly the disciples are culpable. Certainly the Roman officials are culpable. Certainly the crowd is culpable. Certainly Pilate, the Sanhedrin, are culpable. But make no mistake about it. God poured out His wrath upon His Son. This morning, about nine, five minutes after nine, I got a phone call. My wife was hysterically crying. She said, Nicholas is, is hallucinating. He's having, he's having some kind of, of reaction. He is, he's talking out of his head. He's talking out of his mind. And for about, for about five minutes, I was not a pastor. And I couldn't care what happened to this service. I couldn't care who ended up preaching in just a few hours. I didn't care about any of that. The only thing that I cared about was my little boy. Because he was, he was, he was talking out of his head. He was hallucinating. Something was bad wrong. And I told my wife, I said, put him in the car. Take him to the emergency room. I'll meet you there. We'll figure it out. 
as she was putting on clothes, he, he, his fever broke and, and he came to and, and by the grace of God, he, he seems to be fine. But the love that I have for my son trumped everything. I love you guys. I believe that the, the, the role that God has given me to pastor and to shepherd the flock here at Redeemer is second to none. I believe that, that, that He has called me, He has equipped me, He has gifted me, and he has, he has commissioned me to lead the people of God right here at Redeemer. But I promise you this, if there is ever a choice between Redeemer and my kids, I'm going to choose my kids. Because I love them infinitely more than I love you guys. When Jesus stood before Pilate, God placed the iniquity of us all upon His Son. The Scripture tells us they mocked Him, they beat Him. They drove nails through His wrists and through His feet. They hung Him on a Roman cross. And the Scripture tells us that as Jesus was hanging upon that cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Scripture tells us that the sun became black, symbolizing that God had removed, had turned His back upon His Son. Because at that moment, Christ, Jesus, had embodied our sin. And the wrath of God the full, punitive wrath of God was upon Christ. And that's something that is, is hard for me to even begin to fathom. Because I don't even like to discipline my children when they've done wrong. Let alone to discipline my child, to punish my child for someone else's mistake. God poured out His wrath upon Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. I want us to understand this, church. Every one of us is culpable in the death of Christ. Every one of us. This morning, maybe you're the disciple. Maybe when the Afflictions and the hardships of following Jesus become too much. Maybe you stand on the sideline. Maybe you are the crowd that are easily persuaded by the manipulation of the latest political and religious rhetoric. Maybe you're the Sanhedrin. Maybe you are so obsessed with your image and your facade that you are refusing to submit to Jesus because it may, it may make you look, it may make you appear to be different. Maybe you're like Pilate. You're unwilling to forfeit your power, your position, if it means submitting to Jesus. Regardless, we are all sinners. We are all liars. We are all thieves. We're all adulterers. We're all murderers. And we stand culpable, 100% culpable before God. And yet God, demonstrating His great love for us, poured out His wrath, not upon you and me, but poured out His wrath upon Jesus. 
How great is the Father's love. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Not because of anything you've done, but 100% because of what Jesus has done. God calls us sons and daughters. And because Jesus because Jesus was our substitute, because God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, we can cry out to God, Abba. We can cry out to God, Father. We can call Him our Dad. We can crawl up in His lap. And we can hear Him say, I love you. And I've forgiven you. And I've given you grace. And I've given you mercy. All because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask the question, who killed Jesus? The answer is clearly, because of your great love for us, you poured out your wrath on your only Son. You poured out your wrath on Jesus. Church, this morning, if for the very first time you realize that the penalty of your sin, which you deserved, was taken by Christ, I want to invite you to come. Trust Christ this morning. Yield your life submission to Him. Or maybe this morning, you are simply reminded of the great love that the Father has for us. Maybe this morning God is calling you to be a part of what He's doing right here at Redeemer. Or maybe you saw yourself as a Pharisee, or as Pilate, as a member in the crowd, or as one of the absent disciples. God is calling you to recommit your faith. To forsake your image. To forsake your position, your power. To be willing to be willing to suffer affliction with Jesus. To willing to receive Him as He is, not as we'd like Him to be. During this time of invitation, may the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.